0: On this episode of the podcast, I speak with the president of the National Urban Inuit Youth Council, Joshua Strabell. We start our discussion by talking about Josh's work with the National Urban Youth Council, as well as his work with the Toronto Inuit Youth Group, Toronto Muteyugit. We then transition into a very interesting discussion about Josh's thoughts on the environment, understandings of nature, and wilderness. And we wrap up the episode talking about Josh's experiences hunting and fishing. To learn more about the National Urban Inuit Youth Council, as well as Toronto Mute Tayugut, please click on the links in the description. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy the episode. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, My name is Joshua Stravel. I'm the president of the National Urban Inuit Youth Council, the youth representative for the Toronto Inuit Association, and I run a program for Inuit youth here in Toronto called Toronto Mutayugit.
0: How did you get into that? Or how did that organization start? Because I know you were uh, a key figure in that.
1: Yeah. So we ended up after the first annual Inuit Christmas dinner, which happened four years ago now. I think our our fifth annual dinner is coming up this this coming Christmas, which is just amazing. Um, We'd met, I'd met a few other Inuit youth, and we decided, you know, there was no services here for Inuit in Toronto. So we wanted to apply for grant funding to, start building that capacity for anybody here so we applied for a Trillium's Youth Opportunities Fund and luckily we were accepted for a three year grant and we're actually coming up on the end so we're just finishing year two of this grant in about three months and then we'll be on our final year and hopefully applying for a grow grant to Um, it's, it's through the same fund but it's a larger funding each year so um, we, we're really hoping so it's, it's a more competitive grant but we like our chances I guess I don't know and that's that would provide core funding um, or what, what's the how does the so how does that funding model work yeah so through the youth opportunities fund itself um, is part of the provincial government's larger framework called stepping up improving youth outcomes so outlined in that initiative are 13 different outcomes five of which make up the youth opportunities fund and the purpose is to f- fund grassroots youth-led initiatives and So grantees that are awarded funding um, are at the grassroots level. And then the next step, essentially look at some of the more successful grantees through the first three-year process um, and provide them with an opportunity to handle more resources. And all of this is done through a mentoring organization. So you need to have an organization that has, you know, a good financial track record. It's already doing meaningful work and and, and the money comes through them. So our mentoring organization is Tunga, Svinga, Inuit in Ottawa and there you've been launching a lot of provincial and, and even national initiatives as well uh, aimed at empowering Inuit living in urban centers across Canada and even Inuit living in more rural areas they've done outreach I know here in Ontario like Sault Ste. Marie um, you know Thunder Bay in Canada pretty much anywhere you can imagine Inuit might be they go there and they do engagement sections and sessions <laughs> and, and, and they find Inuit they find Inuit in all of these places and so it's very important for us to start finding these resources. Um, but yeah, to get back sort of to, to the funding model, um, it wouldn't be core funding per se. I mean, we sort of have core funding, I guess we have funding for salary, funding for programs and services and funding to rent space for the Toronto Inner Association, um, which is sort of the other body that, that, that we started, it ended up being incorporated September of 2016. Um, we had applied for core funding this year, but. INAC, Indigenous, Northern Affairs Canada, um, they didn't approve any core funding for any organizations this year. Hmm. So they only gave programs and services funding, which, I mean, that's great, but for so many new organizations, you know, how are you going to award programs and services for an organization that has no employee to run these programs and services? Right. Yeah. So
0: what are the the programs and services that... guys do or what are what the 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 kind of the institutional goals that sounds really uh, sounds really official and bureaucratic but yeah no it's
1: I mean there, there's a number of things that we we are doing at this point and one of the things we actually sort of define is what direction do we want to go in as an organization um, especially as we're applying for a new round of funding clarifying sort of where we want to go because there's so many directions that we are going right now, and, and, and that we need to go because we are a young organization. We're the first organizations far South for Inuit. And so outreach was something that we had spent a lot of time focusing on all the way up till now as well. Um, just finding Inuit, letting them know we're here because we're still finding, you know, the fact that we have Inuit artists, and musicians coming through Toronto all the time and, and, there's still, we've, we've been incorporated as the Toronto Indian Association since 2016, September, you know, so about a year and a half now, and many of them still have no idea that we exist. And so they're always happy to hear that that we're around and, and, and that we have space. Um, and so outreach is huge. Providing cultural programming is one area that I think we need to focus on a lot, but we have to develop new strategies to do that. Um, so there's three programs here in Toronto now. There is the Youth Opportunities Fund program, uh, of which I run. And then there's two programs from Tungusuminga Inuit. There's a family well-being program and a youth life promotion program. Uh, the family well-being, when we hired that worker, she was hired about a year ago. And I remember just kind of reviewing the whole program, uh, the family well-being program. And, and I understand this was done largely to get the funding that they needed. You know, you have to have a certain aim. But essentially, what the program assumes is that participants will have a basic understanding of Inuktitut and already know, you know, a number of traditional practices. And that's not a reality for a lot of Inuit in Toronto. And I imagine that as a barrier we've identified, you know, self-identification. That's a funny sentence, identified (laughs) self-identification as a, as, as a huge barrier for urban Inuit Um, and actually the, the census data revealed an awesome statistic that I think really defends that. Um, in Toronto, there's just over 600 people who identify as Inuit, and this is from 2016. However, there's more than 1,500, 1500 or 1,300, more more than that, that number, who identify as having Inuit heritage. And so it's interesting that they kind of phrase a question like that for everyone to fill out. But I thought back to myself, and 10 years ago, if I was filling out that survey, I would say, you know, I have Inuit heritage, but I wouldn't say I was Inuit because I grew up outside the culture. So I think that gap shows this Hesitation among Inuit to truly, um, I think, reconcile with their own identity, and so if you have a program that is running down south, specifically here in Toronto, where the assumption of the program is that participants have basic understanding of Inuktitut and traditional cultural practices, then I think it's 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 intimidating for for someone who wants to come in and just wants to engage with the culture. So I think one of the things we really have to do is start developing strategies of reconnecting with the language and the culture that take assumptions of you know speaking English first and having no concept of of the culture. And, and so finding ways to, to build these programs is something I think we want to spend a lot of time focusing on. And we also find ourselves in the position of doing a lot of cultural competency training um, and just trying to share a lot of every knowledge uh, we have had to become very careful about who we provide these services to because as Inuit, you know, you're the only organization down south. So what you have not down south but that down here in Toronto, you have a number of people who wanna take advantage of that and ex and and exploit it. And, and I would say exploit like non Inuit? Yeah, yeah. And I and I would okay. say and I would say it in in, in a I don't I don't necessarily want to say like exploit as in like there's like a malicious intent behind it but we have so many requests all the time for like cultural competency training, where you know, um, a company's read, and they they might just be like a cloud based you know, company, and they, I'm using a specific example, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they and they, and, and they let's const- not name the company, yeah yeah, yeah. Wait, I can edit that part of, <laughs> <more. laughs> um, and they so this is they you know they, they they email you and they say we we've read the TRC, um, and we've identified you know, the one thing that we can do as a company to to help that out. And every single time, it's cultural competency training, and it's you know, um, as much as I think it's important to, which is just uh, just a, a, a quick elaboration on, like yeah, what, what, yeah, what does yeah. Cultural so, mean? so it, ironically to
0: your question about, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, no, for sure, for sure. So it's, um, I think, if I was to explain it, like, surely it's providing, um, providing a, a description of, of of where our community is at based on the colonial history and our own cultural history and um, distinguishing ourselves too from First Nations and Métis and I find that question gets really interesting, you know, what is cultural competency for First Nations communities when there are over 400 within Canada, how do you, you know, narrow it down and there's such a tendency to want to group us all together. so for us to be able to distinguish anybody from, you know, first HMAT and, and it's important. I think it's really important to, to share this knowledge and history with people who don't know it yet, but we have to be careful, I think, and, and, and look at, cause you know, we, we only have so much capacity to, to provide these services and we're focusing on a number of other things at the same time. Who do you choose? So we end up, I mean, healthcare providers are number one priority because you're going to have a lot of a to who are accessing healthcare and it's really important to, um, that, that, that anyone working with Inuit knows who Inuit are, where we come from, and also to not project that knowledge onto Inuit clients that you might uh, be around, especially down here in the South, right? You might learn about Inuit culture and history, but don't project the knowledge that you've learned onto an Inuit client who, you know, you have no idea what connection they have to their history, to their culture, um, and education. So like the school boards and stuff are another priority as well, because if they're if students are learning accurate knowledge as they go through public school, then when they're adults, they won't need the cultural competency training. Right. Um, but you know, so this, and so then when you have, say, say imagine like a textile company wants to like get cultural competency training, you know, you're not going to prioritize that over. I don't know why it's a textile. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so I guess those. If if I was to say those three directions, there, you know, um, outreach, cultural programming, and cultural competency training for organizations are three of our, um, three of our big aims at this point. And so figuring out, you know, do we emphasize all those? Do we um, move forward with just one in particular? Is is, is a conversation we're going to need to have uh, over the next few years.
0: How big is your organization?
1: Um. So the Toronto Innovative Association itself is a team of eight volunteer board members, with I think we have roughly five thousand dollars left in the bank. Okay. <laughs> so it's a it's a very small organization. Um, uh, the the youth organization itself um, has has annual funding coming in, and uh, the two programs in the our mentoring organization are are are, are well funded as well, and so the. Um, well, what's great about our mentor organization, Tungus, if we got Inuit, is that it's always our intention to help build the capacity of Inuit in Toronto. And then once the Toronto Inuit Association itself has, um, the strength to support its own programs, then all the programs would be transferred over, um, in, 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 their own ending, like grant funding period to, to the Toronto Inuit Association. Oh, okay. So there's no, I think, um, their, their, their goal at that point is really just to to help empower Inuit everywhere. And I I, I really admire that out of their organization. They care, you know, more about um, empowering other Inuit communities than they do about their own organizational sustainability. And I think there's a lot to be said about the integrity of an organization when it, that's its, its main goal. And then, if I'm
0: not mistaken, in March, you have, you're launching a National Youth Council. Is that the...
1: Yeah, so we we're launching a National Urban Inuit Youth Council in March, and uh, we're doing this to begin identifying, addressing, and supporting the needs of Inuit living outside the Arctic. And so, I'm very excited we have Inuit coming from Edmonton, Winnipeg, Montreal, and yeah, it'll be a two-day conference with about 30 youth, culminating in a community feast. Um, community feast or concert, we're not, we're not 100% <laughs> on that yet, the, the space that we wanted. Is not available, and oh. so, um, but it's an opportunity to celebrate urban Inuit identity. Um, we'll have musician Kelly Fraser; she'll be performing there. She she actually just got nominated for a Juno Award, which is uh, it's really cool. The Jerry cans as well. So to have two you know Inuit artists being nominated for Junos is is, is a really exciting time. Um, it'll also be this conference opportunity to create a mosaic of. Experience for Inuit living in different urban centers across Canada. It's a population we really need to start addressing. Since 2006, the population of Inuit living outside the Arctic has grown 58.1, and with a median age of 23, um, you know you can imagine how many of those are youth. And and I think it's something like 59% live in urban centers of 30,000 or more people. So to begin addressing. You know, and, and empowering them. So, so our council itself too really just wants to identify leaders in those communities and figure out what they want for you know, say in Edmonton. And if they need support, if they need help writing grant applications or or what have you. That they're finding that support and that we're creating a network of, inuit that when other inuit come south, you know, say they're pursuing post secondary education or they're coming from medical regions, that they learn how to navigate through the different cities or, t- or towns that they're in and, and they're getting, you know, the adequate support that they need and their networking opportunities are allowing them to meet people in their field. And we really want to um, make that one of our huge priorities because another big part of the vision is to strengthen the relationship between Northern and Southern communities. Um, we're recognizing that urban Indian are, are our own demographic and that demographic wouldn't exist unless there's been a chasm that has caused our communities to, to, to have, you know to mildly, separate experiences so to bridge that in and, and to create a better future for Inuit everywhere is is very important and so starting to have conversations too around you know how can um, the four regions support Inuit down south and how can we support Inuit for the four regions coming here as well and I think a big part of that you know, for, for ever since I've been reconnecting with the culture I have a lot of conversations and, you know the 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 mindset of Inuit down here is always, you know, where are resources coming from the four regions? Where's the money for us Inuit down here? And as much as I, you know, understand and agree with that that idea, it's hard to spread resources that thin when it's very difficult to support our own communities up north. But Inuit down here, we have the opportunity to access funding opportunities that aren't available to Inuit in the Arctic. You know, our my, you know, our youth program here, for instance, accesses provincial funding that Nunavut or Nunatubu would never have the opportunity to to be a part of it, you can't, you can't apply for a trillion application if you're not in Ontario, and it's the same for all the other provinces, so if we can empower our Inuit in those cities to start creating um, those spaces those organizations, and accessing those resources, then what we do is we increase the amount of resources that are available to Inuit everywhere, and so it's a really exciting time I think for, for Inuit, just to give it all these things, and, and I, I often think, you know, Nunavut turned 18 this year and we look back at you know the founding members of of Nunavut and how they had a 26 year battle you know getting this land claim and um, we look back with so much pride at that moment in our in our history when Inuit you know across the Arctic united to to say you know we we need we need our own governance we need our own power over our own lands lives and destinies and I see this as a similar thing as happening now across urban communities, you're looking at a five-year window now where you have different incorporated organizations. There's uh, the Southern Southern Quebec Interview Association. Um, there's an organization in, in Manitoba called uh, Ananatsiak, named after a grandmother in the they just incorporated. They are have space going out of a, a friendship center there. Um, Edmonton is, I know, I think in the process of filing their incorporation papers. So you have you know, in even Toronto Indian Association, right, two years, you're seeing like all these sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exciting moment. And I think we'll look back 20 years from now and be like, that's the moment that, you know, we recognized another moment in our, in our history as a people. And for people of like less than a hundred thousand, I think it's uh, a <laughs> amazing things to see in like the last 50 years. You know, we, we're not taking um, the legacy of colonization lightly asserting your presence in the city. So. Yeah. 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 There's a, the ITK flag is actually, um, hanging downtown Toronto now. Oh yeah. 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 Alongside a, a first Nations Mét flag Where, and, and, uh, at Nathan it's, Phillips. It's, oh, oh yeah. 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 City Hall then. Yep. Yeah. So that's really cool to, <laughs> to have that recognized. Um, yeah. Anyways, <laughs>
0: just to shift to shift slightly. Um, one of the reasons that i've reached out and we're doing the podcast right now not specifically as in friday at 1 30 p.m but uh it's because I, I noticed you had post posted on your facebook page uh of what i thought was a very uh, uh a very thoughtful quotation i guess uh writing about uh, notions about wilderness and so uh so We'll switch. We'll switch from the practical now and mm-hmm. going into a little bit more your thoughts, uh, more to you know more, not theoretical but uh, <laughs> per se. So, uh, um, I, I'll. What prompted that? Because I mean, you. Yeah, I, I mean, because I've known you probably, probably, almost two years. Yeah, almost, almost two from years. almost yeah. from the start of Toronto Mute. just yeah. right after that, I think. And and you seem to you know you have your fingers in everything in the sense of in the sense that like you're you're (laughs) you're seem to be constantly busy so um and i hadn't uh i hadn't really seen that that uh that thought on wilderness come Mm. uh come out and so i just yeah what what prompted that and then we can go into that and hopefully you can you know yeah hopefully i can i can elicit more uh good thoughts (laughs) absolutely
1: absolutely um I mean, I, I think it's it's an idea that I, I thought about for a very long time. And it really started to linger in my mind when I was attending a youth conference and two of the facilitators, their workshop was called Out in Nature. And it was all about finding, you know, meditative spiritual practices of being out in nature and, and focusing on the sounds. And I realized at that point that I really disliked the phrase out in nature. And um, the, re- the reason is, you know, we, we, we tend to think that, we're separate from nature here in the city or, or in towns and in, in areas and you know, um, I've had the opportunity, the, the wonderful opportunity to, to hike in the Arctic in the summer, and we found plastic that had washed up along the tide line. And we were hiking an area that, you know, likely hasn't been hiked for more than 10 years. That plastic wasn't something that someone tossed away as they were walking. It was something that, you know, had traveled and up along the shore. And this idea that we're separate, you know, makes us think that, actions we take in the city stay in the city. And that's just, you know, not the case. And furthermore, you know, it only takes flying into a city to notice that we never left nature. The city's just a growth on the landscape. Um, so I, I watch a lot of nature documentaries. I'm a big, <laughs> big David Attenborough fan. I, <laughs> I often w- wish that my life was more like his, <laughs> um, but planet earth. I, and I kind of, Upset that Netflix, um, they have Planet Earth and Planet Earth Two on on it, but they left out like the three most important episodes of like the Planet Earth series, which were um, this disc and as you know, Saving Our Species, um, into out into the wilderness and and living together. Three episodes where they interviewed a number of um, indigenous people, a number of conservation groups around the world, all talking about our present circumstances as a planet. And I started thinking a lot about sort of the idea of conservation. And how it relates to to wilderness and I started thinking okay well wilderness is must be a rather young concept like it's not something that we've always had and, and I think too considering indigenous worldviews wilderness is you know um, it's, it's not a concept that's in, in, in a lot of indigenous worldviews because you're so connected to the land in an indigenous worldview that you would never come up with the concept of completely separate you know but that but wilderness literally means you know not human occupied land and so i started sort of researching more into it and, and th- there, there there have been you know throughout history a number of similar ideas to wilderness but the way we understand it now and so i think the way i phrased it in the post too was ideas are born and they have a life of their own and they, and they change over time so when we say wilderness we mean a very specific thing a very specific sound that has you know particular meanings and, and and as a poetic idea it didn't really appear in western thought till the 19th century as a poetic idea i think it evolved more into one that was used for conservation you know so take like a national park and this is a wilderness area and we're going to conserve it um, and a number of awesome victories have been have been won. i think through that you you see a lot of you know I, I i'm not i can't think of any clear examples at this moment but um what i think it also does is is, is it perpetuates this idea that we are separate from nature and when you name a wilderness zone for instance like a national park and, and this is a protected area you're looking at it through geographical boundaries but ecosystems you know they don't they don't care about eco sort of like geographical boundaries that we just arbitrarily put onto the world um, and so even in terms of like how, how do we move forward with conservation into the future looking at protected areas like a national park um, yeah, many in, in the arctic and so those areas are protected in one sense, but you have companies that are coming in and doing seismic testing on the water. That's going to affect the entire landscape. So is that really a protected area? If you're threatening so much of, you know, how those ecosystems are, are, are being sustained. Um, If you're threatening the wildlife that lives in the sea and so many of the land animals depend on that, you know, there's this whole, and, and so it comes down to, I think one, direction that I would like to see us go in terms of reconciliation is is understanding that indigenous world views aren't primitive and I think the word traditional is often used to to kind of give it that feeling and, and this idea that you know being closer to the land is somehow uh, makes you you know less of a less of a human less of a civilized human um, when we do that you know we're, we're, we're effectively destroying the planet with that idea and if we all were're connected more to the land then we would get rid of concepts like wilderness and, and conservation because we'd realize that we really just need to to protect the the planet as a whole and yeah I think I lost the original thought but <laughs> it's fun it's a, I mean it's a the, yeah the
0: concept of wilderness um, is a it's a I mean it's a as you're saying it's with the poetic it's a poetic idea there's a rom, there's a romanticism to it. But it's not really it, it. It's not really a ecological concept in any stretch of the imagination. Mm. It's more of a like wilderness is a symbol. So that's like that's what I. That's what struck me about uh, your post was that it was some of the same things that I've been thinking about. And like even the word nature always bothers me mm. when people say I'm going to go out in nature. It's like well, I mean, from my understandings and my. Uh, amalgamations of all the various knowledges that i have read and encountered you know humans are nature yeah yeah. (laughs) right like riding on the subway may not feel all that natural but it is (laughs) absolutely um so that's what like that's what really intrigued me that and because i hadn't seen because it it just seems when people say nature it's just a like a i was going to use it such a natural thing yeah (laughs) but it's kind of like a it's just a very easy word to describe something but but it but again it, it removes humans from the very like the very reality which is you know we're living it yeah you know even again as i said like concrete isn't it doesn't it doesn't have the same perhaps it doesn't have the same stress relieving abilities as hanging out in a forest but i mean it is it is still a natural phenomenon. It may be some. It may be a problematic phenomenon for sure, uh, particularly if you're, like me, inclined more to you know want to hang out in the trees. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, and be and be around other other types of, other types of, the the natural world and other types of existences. But uh, so yeah, that's what it really interests me. So I was I was wondering like. Wh- like what had prompted that? I, w- I was hoping it was more. You were just sharing, and it wasn't. uh yeah, no, <laughs> it, I was, it wasn't. It wasn't like a, you know, you had had a bad encounter because sometimes that can be the, you know, especially on social media, it seems to be when people post things. If if it's not their their cat or uh, what they ate, it tends to be a from a conflictual encounter. So yeah,
1: no, and I, you know, like I, I I do have my. I mean, if you're gonna like put positive and negative posts together, I I think that I have some negative posts, but I always try to make them come from like a place of critical thought. I don't want to ever be, you know, complaining needlessly about something. Um, I think that I made that post at the time, I was actually rewatching one of those episodes from Planners that i was tell <laughs> you about, and then I just started getting like really upset. And, 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 and there's this one, um, one Subway poster that I've been seeing, and every time I see it, it just makes me so angry. So it's like, it's like a cell phone company, and it says, uh, you know, um, escaping civilization is hard on the world's largest mobile network. So that's like like, it's like, a, it's like a pro and con. That's the con. And the pro, you can always throw your phone in the woods. And I'm like, no, there's like two things there. Okay, one, we're not separate from nature. And two, waste is like such a huge, like we're, we're causing so much issues on the planet because of waste. And you're like literally saying a pro, a pro to not be able to escape is you could throw your phone in the woods. Like as if like that's an ethic that should ever be shared, but it is, you know, been crafted by some advertising agent who, you know, got Is getting paid a salary to come up with witty things like that and you can't have you know people laugh at that unless it's part of the common you know ethic to believe that you know yeah we'll just throw it away just throw it in the woods and and we live like these disposable lives, and we're just consuming things and we're consuming the planet and we do it every day in the city you know it's just yeah i think another important aspect about
0: changing notions about wilderness and making uh realizing that humans are part of nature is because the city the city does move and how you said like flying in you see like you see how the city uh, uh, and in some ways occupies the land mm-hmm. and in some very meaningful ways depending on <laughs> yeah yeah most cities in canada are literally occupying the land uh <laughs> um and we had and had said you 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 didn't grow up, uh, I, you didn't grow up in the core like we both now live in Toronto. You grew up in Keswick, and so, mm.
1: um, in terms of, like,
0: uh, yeah, I don't know where to.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, like, but the I mean, so as time goes in the city, you know, sprawls. We like to use that word, urban sprawl. I grew up in Keswick, Ontario, which is essentially forty-five minutes north of Toronto, if you're driving that is a reality now because the highway is finally in, in Keswick. So that's an, you know, element of of the sprawl as well, increasing the accessibility to an area that close to the city. Funny story, just quick about that. I remember, so it's the 404 that goes to Keswick and the mayor, when I was like 10 or 12, he was running for the election. He said, you know, 404 by 04. (laughs) And it was 10 years later, 2014 that we would finally get the 404 (laughs) But Um, Anyways, like I I remember growing up, you know, it's the Greater Toronto area, and I think it's more popularly called now the Greater Toronto Hamilton area, and it's something that if you look from from space, you know, when it starts in Toronto, it doesn't end until Hamilton. You know, you have urban sprawl the the entire way, and it's just you know, in, in the town I grew up in, it was very small. I was probably, like, think one of the first subdivisions that I ever really came into what used to be a strictly a farm town, and in my life, I saw the installation of Know, five, six more subdivisions. A lot more people moving in. We got our own high school. There's a Walmart there now, and as a result, all of the small businesses essentially shut down. Walmart employs, you know, a large portion of the town because there are no jobs. You have to, you have to go to this Walmart. And 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 you know, as time goes on, I imagine like our, our neighboring town, Newmarket, will start to have a lot more businesses coming into it that are, you know, not necessarily blue collar. um service providing, you know, retail industries. Um, but you see this sort of this and, and, and it's hard not to, to feel as if it's like a, a cancerous growth. And I think it's just because of the destructive power of how we organize and arrange ourselves now across the landscape is it's just, it's just this, this, this growth that that continues to destroy everything in its wake. And, and, and the reason is, you know, what our primary goals are. Right? Our, our primary goals are economic growth, and we do that at all costs, um, and it's, not, it's not, not necessarily a bad thing. I think that there are ethical ways to have economic growth, but in order to implement those ways, you have to help other industries grow, and the people who have money right now, you know, that means they would lose money, and that's, yeah, I think, the, the real crux or issue. You talk about you know jobs that would be available. To people, if we went to green energy, we would create thousands, millions of jobs. You know, you're creating an entire new industry. Think about how, but who's <laughs> profiting from it, right? It's not the same people who are who are profiting now, and it's just um, we we really need to change in our values, and I think that comes down to reconnecting with the land, and so reconciliation. I tend to think of reconciliation in layers, and the most important layer more than um, recognize you know reconciling with your own identity is us reconciling with the rest of the planet and I think that means the destruction of the concept of wilderness and, and nature and, and this, this dualism. We love dualisms as as Western thinkers, destroying that and, and recognizing that, you know, we never left it, we've always been a part of it. As much as the city might feel like a separate, you know, you're still you're still a part of it. Coyotes are living yeah. next door in your city. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. There are quote unquote wild animals who are yeah, are urban creatures as well.
1: Yeah, they did that. They did that episode on Planet Earth 2 as cities. As a cities episode, so it's like all the wildlife that are you know inhabiting cities. That was a great episode and great effort, I think, to to help people recognize, like, hey, you know, Toronto was featured in it actually. With, oh yeah, uh, with with raccoons. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. The thing we're most famous for now, yeah. Raccoons yep. are, you know, the set
1: the second city, the, yeah. The yep. other city of <laughs> our, our municipal animal, yeah, <laughs> should be on the flag. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I, I think you've you've said it twice in terms of
1: reconciliation and connecting to the land. What does that mean to you? Um, so if I also just kind of give two suggestions on how to. And, and these are obviously very basic, very conceptual, very abstract, and practically, you know, how do we actually end up doing this? But I think that there are two simple focuses that we can make, and I think it starts with how educating our children is instilling a love for the environment and a love for the humanities in all of our children. And then you're going to eliminate so many issues of racism, so many issues of climate change, because how can you not protect something that you care about when you learn to care about other people? How do you not want to protect them? When you learn to care about the land, how do you not want to protect it? And I think this is a really pertinent time for us to do it as we move away from quote unquote, the natural world into more digital spaces, into artificial intelligence, into these, you know, like we said, humans are natural and all the phenomena that we create is, 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 is a natural phenomena, but it's hard for it to feel that way. Obviously when we move towards things that are just, you know, so artificial and it's so important for us to, to be able to do this now. And, 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 as the population grows too, right? I've heard a lot of people say overpopulation is only an issue if we continue to consume products the way that we consume it now, it's not an issue if we change the way that we're, that we're living. And so I think it's moving away from this, you know, as we create digital space, as we move toward these things, we, we, I think reinforce these concepts of wilderness because what we're doing is we're moving into a world that is entirely artificial and we forget when we do that, that we're still connected to this other world. And, you know, it's like all that all those black mirror episodes and stuff like virtual reality and stuff, you know, that's, I think the culmination of, you know, just turning our backs on everything else that's around us is the moment that you can just live in some kind of hedonistic paradise within your VR headset <laughs> Is you know it's 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 scary, but I think that's where we're heading towards. And the only way that we can stop that and stop going towards this you know selfish, hedonistic place is to back up. And backing up means remembering that we're a part of the land. And that's why Indigenous worldviews aren't primitive. You know, I I, I tend to you know there, there there are amazing things about science. I love science. Science is the closest to objective truth that we'll ever arrive at. And the way that it's allowed us to change the world in so many good ways is, is just, you know, it's, 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 you cannot deny that, but, um, we're not using it, I think in the in the most effective ways and that comes down to essentially what our, what our values are, you know, we value, we value narcissism in our society, we value selfishness, we value greed, we value economic growth and if we continue to value these things then we'll continue to move away from and continue to destroy everything that is, you know, <laughs> not us yeah
0: yeah that was an uh, that was an uncomfortable laugh i just made yeah, yeah <laughs> that yeah. wasn't yeah you know, it's more like oh that's not
1: it's not uplifting at all uh, i, I <laughs> find the new like watching the news is a lot like that right you're just yeah. kind of uncomfortably laughing all the time there they go again <laughs>
0: so in terms of uh in terms of uh, like the practicalities of of that in terms of understanding and caring and just, like, just, like, plain appreciativeness, really. Um, how do you go about that? Like, do you – have you found yourself trying to actively um, – trying to actively live what you – and that that's not a fair
1: question because it's not, like – No, it's – These questions
0: – I don't – it's not, like, a – I'm not trying to set up, yeah. like, a moral high ground
1: or, you know, no, set sure. you up it's, as any sort of it's, – it's, it's an excellent question, and, I mean, I think I'm in that transformative – Place in my life right now, and it's hard to say. You know, where where that'll end up. I mean, small tangible things like not using plastic bags at the grocery store, not using that five-second plastic subway bag. You know, to um, I I I try to make afterwards like that. I think more than anything, eventually I'll leave the city, and that's when I can really um, do a lot of this, do do a lot of this transformation work because. At the same time as you recognize, you know how difficult, sorry, like, like how unethical it is for all of our factory farm food, and and there's just so much about being a consumer that sucks because you just are forced to make decisions that are that are necessarily destructive to to the world around you, and so. I think even talking about these ideas is, is is a great way to do it. Eventually leaving the city and not participating in the the city economy is something I would like to do in the future. But in order to sort of situate myself in a position where I'm comfortable enough to do that, I feel like I have to spend time here and, you know, um, focus on career sustainability to a point where eventually I can, you know, hopefully have comfortable enough resources to do that. Um, but I think a huge part of it too is, is, is encouraging us even as consumers to recognize that, um, it's not our fault, you know, I think that industries tend to point the blame towards us and say, well, you can make different decisions. Sure. I can make different decisions. Um, but it's very difficult to do that. It's very hard to do it. It's not convenient. It's more expensive and plastic bags wouldn't exist if you didn't produce so many of them. <laughs> you know, it's the, the, I think, I think a lot of these issues are, 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 at a, are at a fundamental level. And if these things weren't happening, you know, if, if. If industries weren't producing fossil fuel cars there'd be no fossil fuel cars on the road so as consumers we would not be buying fossil fuel cars because you know the consumers like mindset is just the most basic mindset in the world it's it's convenience it's about maximizing you know um, ma- maximizing value and minimizing time and effort that's the consumers mindset and so if we can arrange it so that our, our industries are, are focusing on that then, I think, I think it comes down to encouraging and, and, and sponsoring a lot of these industries to, to, so, and, and, I, and I see that happening, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, really not knowledgeable in the business world, uh, that much, but I, but I see a lot of good things happening or I, or at least I hear a lot of people talking about good things happening. And so hopefully we can see a lot of these projects get a lot of traction in the future.
0: So you said you in a future plan or maybe not necessarily, Future, as in you know, twenty years from now, but uh, it it sounds like you'd uh, like to do a little bit more living off the land, if yeah. as a phrase. Uh, yeah. So, be out in nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Do you have a like? Do you have a lot of experience? Like, are you a hunter, a fisher, um, camper, hiker?
1: I mean, I, I I've I've done my share of uh camping in Algonquin Park, doing some nice long portage canoe trips, which some of my fondest memories growing up um I did a lot of fishing when I was much younger like before I was a teenager and it was on the Trent Canal my aunt's cottage um um, beyond that I I hadn't had a lot of experience until uh, I finally have had the chance to go up north in the last couple years and a cousin of mine that I had met he took me up seal hunting for the first time and that was amazing experience shot a rifle for the first time um we didn't catch a seal that day he caught one the day before though and i i watched him you know skin it and prepare within like five minutes he had like you know this entire seal like every single part of it had been you know gutted and 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 and, and, and sorted into its its proper place so i was like i was really you know really <laughs> impressive to see i'd love to learn that one day um one thing i guess that we saw that was really unusual um there were all these harp seals and there must've been like a thousand of them. It was almost, almost like a 180 degree on the horizon. They were all just swimming and dancing. And we hadn't seen like a ring seal in in a while. And, uh, we were just watching them and and my cousin had said, you know, you know, I've never seen this many together all at once. Like it's just, you know, so it was crazy to see. And, um, I guess, you know, as we were looking and we hadn't shot the gun in a while. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll take a shot at one of them. And he didn't hit it. Um, but the moment that gunshot went off, all of those seals were underwater, and you didn't see a single one of them again. Like they <laughs> were just, they were just gone. And I'd never seen so many animals in one place at one time, and then just disappear as if you know there was nothing. And um, we were out there for a good twelve hours that day, and for there's about two hours we were just riding around the boat and didn't see a single thing. And um, one of the things you know he had said is. You know, there's probably orca in the waters. when there's orca around, you don't see any animals. They're all just gone. They're, they they're hiding. And I was like, wow, that's you know. I I loved sort of hearing his like knowledge of, of, of what was going on in, in, in the circumstances that we were in, and it created this huge fear of orcas in me now. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, even 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 uh, I I met a marine biologist in, in in the summer, and she had said, you know, the only like animals she's afraid to swim with are or orcas she she was swim with sharks you know some of the most aggressive sharks and she's not afraid of them and she's terrified of orcas and i'm like geez like yeah. yeah and just you're in a small boat <laughs> and you're just wondering like you don't know how hungry this guy is yeah. Just, yeah him and all of his friends just come in and you're just like all right well where where was this uh it's in a calabit okay. so um I'm not sure exactly how far we had we had gone offshore but um, yeah it was, it was it was quite a day that's for sure and uh, it was in the summer I presume that yeah, yeah 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 uh, the best thing I ever saw though I think nature wise I've always loved birds and we went to this place called Haunch Island which is just outside of like the Frobisher Bay like the that that's the bay right yeah, yeah um, just outside of that bay and it's this like it's like a bird sanctuary and so there's like three different kinds of birds that, I, I guess, they, they go there and they, and they spawn there and like, it must have been, I don't know, 10, 15,000 birds and like, the moment you kind of come into it, it's just like, all you hear is them and, you know, I never, it was literally like a scene of an nature documentary. I thought I would never get to experience something like that in my life, but we kind of pulled up in the Zodiacs and it was, it was unbelievable and then there was a whole bunch of melting icebergs around too and so our Zodiac driver, she, she, she pulled up to one and I filled up a water bottle. My dragon, I was like, um. oh, wow!" she's like, um, you know, she, she, she works for British Antarctic survey. So she has had, you know, she, she's, she's a climatologist, you know, was, you know, paleo, sorry. She's a paleo climatologist. So she has climate change over like millions of years. And I asked her, you know, well, how old is the iceberg? She's like, well, I couldn't say for sure. And I'm like, well, what's it, like, what's the range? She said, well, ranges you know, 2000 to 20,000 years. So at the minimum that water was as old as, as Jesus. Right. And I was <laughs> like, that's really cool. But then I read this article on Facebook that's talking about how melting ice is re-releasing all these super viruses that have been (laughs) dormant for, for, for millions of years back into, back into, I was just like, huh, imagine, you know, that was just an unlucky liter of water that contained, you know, yeah.
0: I, I am appreciating your stories where you're talking about this wonderful experience, and then, you <laughs> and then there's some reflection upon your <laughs> imminent or uh, <laughs> or threatening doom. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think I think I think that's just uh, just the climate of the time zone. It's like yeah, this is great, but also it's kind of
0: <laughs> two thousand year old water. That's uh, that's that. Did it age well? Um.
1: Yeah. You know. I. I <laughs> better than a fine wine yeah and um and certainly as exclusive yes yes certainly as exclusive I should have. <laughs> it seems like one of those things you try to sell people would be like uh like like you just like put it in a bottle put a sticker on it like 2,000 year old water try and sell it yeah. on, on, on ebay okay. <laughs> that
0: would be that would be hilarious
1: miracle water <laughs> um
0: did you do any other hunting when you've been up north or have you done any other hunting down south or
1: um that's probably that's probably the extent of it um hunting is something that you know i i've really started to wrap my head around in the last let's say I, I, fishing I, fishing was always something i enjoyed a lot but i think growing up you know i had this really western view of hunting as just an awful thing always <laughs> and it hasn't been until i've gotten older and, and, and wiser that i realized you know that's not the case depending on how you're how you're doing it right i'm not you know advocating for trophy hunting where yeah you know, like those instagram people taking pictures of the giraffes they just shot um but sustainable hunting is an incredible thing and such an important thing and really gets you connected to you know like for forget the pun but like the the meat of life right like the actual <laughs> you know like like what is you know the the, the sort of found there and, and i think too when you put it in comparison to how we farm animals is just i mean it's so interesting you know you have the Kukum kitchen selling seal in uh in toronto and you have all these environmentalists up in arms but meanwhile they're saying nothing about the chicken beef and 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 pork that's being farmed and living in horrible conditions where they die being fed antibiotics you know so that the animal the other animals don't die from the rotting corpses that are in the, you know, it's just like, how can you, you know, it's, 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 um, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to, to gain an appreciation for it. And it it's something that I think I will, I will try and spend a lot more of my, my time in the future doing. And I guess in, in Ontario that, you know, I guess a deer or, 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 turkey is, uh, the animal to, to hunt here. Yeah. Is that, am I yeah, right? Yeah,
0: you can, Yeah. there's grouse you can you can you can kill a raccoon if you really want to. I don't I've never heard of anyone eating a raccoon. I don't know what it would taste like.
1: Yeah. yeah. I got to use all, every part of the animal. <laughs> just just imagine wearing like a raccoon fur around Toronto. He yeah. was <laughs> so like, "What did you say? Well, I use all the part of the animal?" You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I you can buy raccoon pelts, so they
0: fair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure the the fur is uh just as useful for keeping you warm as other creatures. I'm not quite sure. I'm not. I'm not sure on the, how it com- compares to like, a, like a coyote or fox fur because those mm. are the, some of the warmest. But uh, and uh, on that note too, in terms of uh, eating seal, because uh, you're here today at, at York to uh, yep. to serve seal. I am. How I did am. How did that come about? What's the um, so. And and also make sure you describe how it's being served. Yeah, yeah.
1: So <laughs> we we found. I mean, yeah. Like I said, Kugum Kitchen in in um, Toronto serves seal. So of course they have. Have, have you a, been there? I haven't. Okay. But I but I but I did realize that they must have a supplier. And so of course I found their supplier. Um, it's a company called CDNA and Northern Quebec. And I won't get into that yet because there's a lot of things I think I could say about about kind of what's going on there, but. Um, we did for this feast order seal from them. And um, it's an important thing to have, I think, for, for Inuit. Uh, country food is always very important. And um, Yale University did a study in 2014 where, um, you know, when you're Inuit, you're, you're kind of lucky that you've been studied so much by, by scientists because they're all <laughs> trying to answer that, you know, probing question how do you survive for thousands of years in the Arctic and eat nothing but meat? Um, in 100% of their their sample rate they found this genetic mutation and I'm sorry 100% of their Inuit sample rate they found this genetic mutation that was also shared in I think 20% of their European sample rate and uh, from my understanding those Europeans were Northern Europeans and this mutation essentially what it does is slows down the production rate of polyunsaturated fatty acids omega 3 and 6 slows down your cholesterol production rate and slows your fasting insulin level and so all these are linked with High protein, high, high meat diet. And so, what that, and, and seal obviously is very rich in, in, in all of those things. And so, it increased that importance, you know. So, when we eat eggs and fish as Inuit, you know, and we most likely have the genetic mutation too, if 100% of their Inuit's sample rate it, then we eat these things. It tells us we need to eat more of that to get the same amount as, as someone else. Um, it also explained why Inuit have a lower rate of diabetes. It, you know, First Nations diabetes is, is, is well above the Canadian average. Interestingly enough, for Inuit, it's below the Canadian average. Hmm. And if we have a genetic mutation that slows down our fasting insulin level, which is directly related to diabetes, and you know, that, that, that explains that. When I said that to some community members, they're like, that's why I can drink so much pop. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no you should take away from it. It's not a license. Uh. <laughs> um, but, it, but it increases the importance, I think, of, of being able to provide. Um, country food to to our community down here in the south, and um, the way that I'm going to prepare it was the way I saw it sort of prepared by my cousin on 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 the on the C3 ship the the icebreaker we were on to to the whole group he had prepared it as a burger in in a slider form. So I want to make make my own, you know I want to have like the classic Stravel seal slider <laughs> recipe, and I, I think it's a great way one to um, introduce something like seal, which is very rich in nutrients too. Um, a population in Toronto that, you know, has ever really tried it, probably really skeptical of trying it. And, you know, the, the most, I think conducive way to encourage someone to try steel is maybe not to eat it raw. Like, like many of us do, (laughs) which by the way, is really great. If you eat it raw, tastes amazing. If you like sushi, it's a very, very easy transition. Um, But also I think to sort of, and I I really am looking forward to experimenting with different ways of, of preparing steel um, Because I think it's a great way to celebrate our our urban identity down here too, and and, and the blending of cultures and 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 how that can be, you know, it, it could be used to to produce really really beautiful creations, create beautiful creations. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that that was almost a perfect way to end it. You? Know, then yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> then you corrected yourself. Yeah. <laughs> So what's the, the the event that you're that you'll be serving these sliders at?
1: Uh, so every year York University does a big powwow. It's probably like the first of the season, I think, down here in Ontario. Um, it's usually a two day event, and they're doing the powwow now. And, um, you know, a, a great way to show how are building our, ability, our own capacity within Toronto. The co president of the students association here at York University, she's Inuk, and so. She arranged for there to be an Inuit specific feast tonight where we're gonna have char, caribou, um Oh you have caribou. Yeah, we have some caribou coming as well. Oh um, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's not a funny story about caribou. <laughs> I mean I so I started reading this 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 book by Farley Moat, People of the Deer. And okay. I was really intrigued by it because I had found the original publication at a friend's house and the publishers had made a subtitle on it like you know um uh, a valiant people's struggle for survival always dramatic continuously interesting and <laughs> I just thought that was such a statement you know the book was published in the 50s it was such like a a statement of the mindset of indigenous people at the time right you know as like these like romantic dying savages and so like I became increasingly interested in, in the book itself and the author Farley Boat. and as I researched more I learned that in fact, Farley Morat was kind of a champion of reconciliation before the movement had a name. And he had written this book, People of the Deer. And sure, you know, it's 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 a product of his time, just like he's a product of his time as well. But he ended up advocating for a number of the injustices that were happening to anybody by the hands of the government and the Catholic Church at the time. And when he published it in 1951, two years later, it would actually be discussed at the House of Commons. And they, of course, would deny everything that, you know, probably what I brought up, but I thought that was really interesting. And I was reading it just before, um, a community event, actually we we're, were having eight games. And, uh, one of the, one of the, the chapters is people with the deer. He dedicates an entire chapter to the caribou migration that he observed for the whole summer. He was there and, um, within the, this chapter dedicated to the caribou migration, there are two full pages dedicated to the parasites he found <laughs> on caribou as, as, as they migrate through it. And he's giving numbers and these really, really disheartening, um, <laughs> really disheartening, you know, so, so, that, so that you kind of go to the event and the caribou's there. And I love caribou. It tastes great. Um, quok, you know, raw caribou is, is very good as well. But I'm kind of like looking at it. And you know you're just kind of thinking to yourself like all these parasites, and I know I understand that most parasites are killed during a freezing process, but <laughs> I also remember being in Rankin Island in the winter, and you know I never felt so in okay. as eating quok when we were out on on the tundra ice fishing, but then I got food poisoning. Oh no! <laughs> and I was I was like I was at a commission for a good day or two, and 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 you know, um, I I I'm 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 a little bit skeptical at this point about eating unprepared caribou oh yeah yeah
0: okay yeah little that's my that's my little story a little hesitant on that that. That one yeah and again back back to the (laughs) (laughs) back to the there seems to be this tension in your experiences yeah beautiful moments that are yeah that that (laughs) are
1: tinged with like just just like staring off into the into the arctic tundra all you see is ice and feel the minus 40 breeze on you and you dip your quok into some soy sauce, you take a bite and you're around all these other Inuit and you just say, you know, yes. Then, and then 12 hours later, you're, you're at the toilet. (laughs) That's certainly
0: one way to connect. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Probably not getting back to the, you know, I, I figured that it, it certainly, it certainly, uh, dispels any romantic notion of, uh,
1: yeah, I know. Just yeah, it's, <laughs> of, the, it's, of a
0: pit of the picturesque scene you
1: yeah, just described. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know that's that's life, right? You have those beautiful moments, and then you have those other moments. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That was
0: a very engaging. Uh, now I probably won't be able to look at uh, when when I'm in my serene moments. I'm going to try to not not think about the impending dooms that uh, may accompany them but
1: (laughs) yeah thank thank you for having me and uh I yeah I mean best of luck yeah
0: (laughs) and uh I I hope uh, I hope Toronto Mute and the Toronto Inuit Association I hope you accomplish all the goals that you guys set out for that and it sounds like sounds like it's going really well so far so all the best yeah thank you very much and if if any government officials out there uh, please give them their money the money they asked for (laughs) (laughs) this is yeah great (laughs) thank you